So you're rescued from the sort of depths of your despair at there being no meaning to life, but it's out of that frying pan into another fire. But that fire at least comes with some sort of productive power. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with a more knowledgeable life, a self-improved life, a happy life. Today we're going to be talking about evil, Rudy. That's why I'm so we silent. talk about evil. I'm talking, that's why I'm so <laughs> silent. This, this, uh, I am, I don't know, this is going to be, so how would I, how would I slot this episode? I guess this episode would go into some of our more old school, straight up philosophical discussions where I, my jaw is dropping and I'm, and I'm shocked during a lot of the episode. <laughs> well, you know, we hear from our listeners, we get great feedback. Thank you for everyone who's joined our Patreon. But one feedback that you got from the great pediatric cardiologist, friend of the pod, guest of the pod, fan, Dr. Anthony McCanta, was that he liked our philosophy episodes. So Tony, this one is for you. You ask and we served up something good. Okay, we're going to be talking about evil. We have philosophy professor of Dominican University. He is the author of Longing for the Other, Levinas and Metaphysical Desire, also the author of The Ethics of Resistance, Tyranny of the Absolute, and his upcoming book that we're going to be talking a lot about, The Matter of Evil, Dr. Drew Dalton, also my friend from graduate school. Cheers to Belgium. Yes, we also talk a lot about punk rock. So also, Tony, that, that should <laughs> amuse you as well. We, we talk about my lack of music ability, but that's okay because of punk rock. And I feel like I'm on, um, yeah, I get called out a lot on this episode for my crazy theories, but maybe I put myself out into the shot line. I don't know. This is definitely one that I've thought a lot about, not just because I think about evil, I think about existence and I think about the chaos of the universe and I think about procreativity. I mean, I mean, it's just like, just, Rudy, that I was don't know. This, this one, that was I know it's gross. Really? It's very gross. We talk philosophy on every episode. Usually we bring in some kind of philosophical quote. This one, we're talking straight up philosophy. The stuff that makes no <laughs> sense okay, to me because I'm, I'm a practical person. So that's why I think, you know, the listeners that like to hear me not understand something will love this one. What Drew is tackling with scientific inquiry and how that can inform and relate to our understanding of our place in the world, the way we interact in the world. Yeah, so you've got a bit of science as the background, you've got a bit of history of philosophy, and he has got a different trajectory of talking about the moral status of the universe. Normally, it's thought about as a good creation, all goodness, and he is challenging that, but it doesn't leave out moral theory as how one ought to behave or one the way one ought to be. So thank you, Drew, for coming on the show. I guess that's what we'll call this. What is the moral status of the universe with Dr. Drew Dalton? Okay, so this is going to be a very cool episode for me. So Rudy, I'm going to gush for a second, okay? Are you ready? Gush away. Rudy, I knew in high school and then later in my adult life. Rudy, you are one of the smartest people I know. Musician, creative, lawyer, fantastic wit. And now, Rudy, you get to meet somebody who knew me in my graduate school years, that in-between, who is also one of the smartest people that I know. Musician, loves creative stuff, is as much of a bookworm as I am, Dr. Drew Dalton. 
Thank you. Of course, Rudy, of course, if you've known Gwen that long as well, you know to take uh, whatever she's just said about oh, me. Oh, no. With a Gwen's salt. a terrific liar. I mean, she literally started off the show right, with yeah. lies about me, but, but I love her anyways. But Drew, I'm sure you are one of the most intelligent persons she's ever met because in preparation for this, I've read some of the well, articles. I've read about you. I can't wait for this discussion. I am the student today to learn from the two masters. So take it away, masters. (laughs) Well, Drew, let's start out with you've done work where you are talking about the importance of science implications, the methodology, and the way in which philosophy can respond to that and use, uh, let's say, do a critique or an understanding of science to better help us understand our own humanity. So could you maybe give a little bit of background of the science in particular that you're interested in and what philosophical methodology is helping? And keep in mind, we've got a broad audience. So for for the beginner. I think I'd start by saying that I think there's a bit of a false dilemma between the division of philosophy and science, right? Historically, for the vast majority of history, these two things have been seen as complementary exercises in the pursuit of understanding, right? Complementary exercises in the pursuit of truth. It's only relatively recently that they've been divided from one another. In fact, the word scientia, from which we get the word science in Latin, is just a translation of the Greek word philosophia, right? It's kind of love of wisdom. In their primal root, they're aimed at the same thing. It's just using diverse methods to try to understand the problems of reality. So really, honestly, even into the 20th century, philosophers were reading scientists and scientists were reading philosophers. A great example is Einstein credits David Hume to helping him think through the nature of relativity. He also constantly uh, referenced Spinoza as a person to kind of help him think through the unity of the universe. John Dalton, the great chemist who came up with the first sort of atomic theory, cited Democritus and Epicurus as inspiring his atomic understanding of the universe. I mean, we have examples of scientists reading philosophy throughout the canon. And we also have examples of philosophers doing science and reading science throughout the history as well. It's just relatively recently that things have gotten so specialized and so hyper-individualized within their sub-disciplines that we've really kind of lost touch with one another. That's a profound shame to me. So I'd like to kind of return to that by reading what science has taught us about the nature of the world in the last 20 to 50 years. And there's really been a a major revolution in the material and mathematical sciences in the last 50 years to that end, to help us understand the problems of reality that we encounter at a philosophical or humanities level a, a deeper way. So on that note, and I know I'm supposed to go brief and relatively short, but one of the major developments in sciences in the last 50 years has been what's called the sort of thermodynamic revolution which is equal in importance to the kind of Copernican revolution of the 16th century and reorienting our understanding in the nature of the universe. And this thermodynamic revolution has basically exposed the laws of thermodynamics as the underpinnings of everything we experience at a kind of meta level, biologically, chemically, and at the level of physics. In fact, a lot of contemporary scientists even think that it's through a better understanding of the fundamental principles of thermodynamics that we'll be able to kind of eventually gain a so-called unified theory of everything. So if all of a sudden we have this new understanding of reality at every level through statistical mechanics and thermodynamics, then why can't we use that to understand reality in a new way philosophically? To understand it through what philosophers call metaphysics, which is the science of what it means to exist in the first place, or ethics, which is simply sort of asking, can we deduce questions of good and evil from the nature of reality? To questions of politics, how can we use our understanding of what good and evil is to kind of create a practical approach to how we live life. So I really kind of want to recreate this 
unity of philosophical questions and scientific understandings to kind of answer these basic questions. I love it. I'm wondering, what do you think is the the marker? Like, did you pinpoint the shift where the two disciplines seem to be discrete disciplines? What happened? I think I read a while ago that it was when philosophers started to focus on language or something along those lines, kind of blaming philosophy as going away from science. But I've always viewed that there's just this profound desire to understand why we're here. We know we didn't create ourselves. And so science has been just one of these tools, this mechanism to try to understand the world in which we live in, just have a better clue. And philosophy is giving us similar tools to understand how to navigate the existence that we did not choose to be part of, but we're just thrown into it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I, I, in terms of, well, I think there's two two separate questions there. Like the way I would describe it is that philosophers, mathematicians, and scientists have these three things in common. They're both interested in elevating us out of the sort of immediate lived experience of our life so that we can gain what what we refer to as an overview effect of reality. So I'd say that the distinction between, for example, truth and opinion is the same as the distinction between reality and perception. We start with perception. We start with opinions and our opinions grow from our perceptions. Our perceptions are limited to how things appear. The aim of philosophy, science, and mathematics is to kind of liberate us from the immediacy of perception, to see things from a kind of more absolute standpoint. The standpoint, not, for example, of our embodied reality, but reality as such to help us understand these things. So I think all three of us have a similar aim. So I use the metaphor of an overview effect in the same way that like, look, from the from the standpoint of the earth, it looks like the planets are revolving around us. The sun's revolving around us. I, mean, I can watch it go up in the east and set in the west every day. But when we escape the standpoint of the earth, when we gain an overview of the fact and we can look back on the earth from a kind of more absolute standpoint, or, and of course we know that standpoint's not absolute, but at least from a more distant, abstracted standpoint, we can see that, that in fact, the way things appear from the perception of terrestriality is false, that there's a bigger truth. I think mathematics, science, and philosophy are all aiming at abstracting us, pulling us out of the immediacy of our lived perceptions in order to see things from that more abstract standpoint, see things as they as they actually are. In terms of how they divided, I don't think there's any like single moment. Like a lot of people want to pin it on some moment in a turn in philosophy or some moment at penalty. To me, it's more like, look, these two things have been together for forever. So it's more like a marriage that's just grown <laughs> sort of into a kind of inertia. These two people are living together, doing the same things, pursuing the same things. And before they realize it, after 30, 40, 50 years, they've grown so far apart precisely in their similarities. I think it's more like that. I think there's not some great dramatic divorce where philosophy betrayed science or science betrayed philosophy, but rather that they just kind of were living side by side, pursuing this sort of overview effect for so long that they've developed habits and lives of their own and they completely forgot. They forgot to schedule their date nights, right? They're not telling each other how pretty they are anymore. (laughs) They're not saying, I appreciate you. Yeah. Really quick, since I'm the dumb guy today, as I was reading your paper, Drew, I think I know what you mean when you keep referencing the absolutes. As a lawyer, I have my own concepts of that. But for our listeners who are way smarter than me, right? But just can you can you just break down when you're referring to absolutes? Can you just break that down into a little bit more digestible so we can so that I kind of guide about what we're debating over here? Yeah, so it's I think it's always good when you want to break something down to break down the word itself. So the word absolute comes from the Latin word absolve, which means to take remove from a distance, right? So ab away from and solve to separate. So in other words, the concept of the absolute is the idea of something which is entirely separate and distinct from us. So to see something from an absolute perspective, for example, is to see something from a perspective which is not our own, but which is removed from our own. And not merely other than our own, 
but removed literally from every other perspective so that we see things as they are rather than as they appear from any given perspective. Can you give an example? Yeah. So the classic example would be the concept of God. So throughout the history of philosophy, the, the first absolute that people have traditionally turned to is the idea of a God, right? So a God is seen as this universal perspective or this universal truth, which is not any given perspective or any dip, given uh, framework, but is the sort of totality of every framework. You might also think of eternity, like in light of eternity, this is a kind of uh, secularized conception of, the, of God, right? In light of eternity, we can understand the whole, we might say. So these are concepts of the absolute that have been mobilized throughout history. But I think there are other absolutes, right? Matter itself. What does matter itself, which is completely indifferent from any given perspective, have to say about the matter? What do chemical relations have to say about the matter? Chemical relations don't change regardless of their perspective. Mathematics is an absolute, right? The universality of mathematics is precisely what makes it so such a powerful tool, right? Mathematics is the same regardless of what perspective one approaches them for. So while, for example, there may be various mathematical languages, we might have a sort of decimal system or a duodecimal, dozenal system. There are different counting numbers. There are different languages in which we can speak of numbers. The relationships between numbers, the relationships of algorithmic computation are universal. I think this is actually one of the reasons why when you're, for example, a first-generation migrant to a nation, you don't necessarily speak the language fluently. Mathematics is, is a really lovely and easy entree point in the educational system because they're translatable. They're universals. That's what makes something like that an absolute. So when we talk about the absolute, that's really what we're talking about. Yeah. Totally get it. And I love that you brought in mathematics because if you've ever listened to any of the episodes here, I despise mathematics. <laughs> and my problem with mathematics is you can't BS mathematics. That's exactly right. Now you're talking my language. Like when you're talking about things that I do not like, they are absolutes because I, like, well, actually just mathematics, because number one, I can't figure out mathematics. I'm really, I'm really a mathematical idiot. Number two, you can't argue with mathematics. Like you, it's not warm and fuzzy. It is what it is. So thank you very much. You just Drew. confirmed your belief. Please continue. You know what? Uh, so in Gwen's introduction, Rudy, uh, she mentioned that you were a musician. So I'm going to fundamentally contest the point that you despise mathematics. I'm going to guess you hate arithmetic. I'm going to guess you hating do, you hate doing computation. But if you like music, yes. you love mathematics. Because all music is, is mathematical relationship. This is why, for example, the ancient Greeks thought that if you wanted to learn mathematics, you had to learn music. And the, the two were seen as synonymous. Pythagoras, the guy who coined the word philosophy himself, thought that um, you had to practice music in order to learn mathematics. In fact, he used to hold these... Uh, hallucinogenic parties where people would do sort of, you know, mushrooms, mathematics, and play a bunch of music. So it was kind of now like you're a, talking. a geek uh, burning man. But I think- Whoa, <laughs> nice. But I think like, uh, you know, in music, you understand, for example, the circle of fifths. You understand the basic relationships. No, no, I know. I, no, no, Drew, <laughs> Drew, I, I don't. I was a punk rock star. And what I understood was anger and how the sound of the bass and the drums and the guitar matched with some real anger and some voices what felt made me feel really powerful. So I'm going to go ahead and say, <laughs> no, 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 I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah, so there you enough. go. I just, I, I'm done for the rest of the show. It, there you go. Thank you very much. It is true. I mean, I do think one of the things that's lovely about punk rock as a musical genre is precisely the way it, it sort of fundamentally rejects the knowledge elements of music, right? It says, we don't care about that. We just want to make it feel a certain way, but they're still using the yep. acoustics of it, right? I mean, they're still sort of wanting to vibrate the chest. You know, you crank the, yes. the, the Marshall up to 11, but it has that power at 11, that effect precisely because there's something physical going on. And if you understand the mathematics of it, you're just understanding the physicality of it. You're understanding what it is that it's doing to you, you know? 
I actually think that I loved punk rock because you're absolutely right. It was like, what? What, what do you mean musical notes and stuff like that? Just make it sound kick ass. <laughs> and like a really funny, really funny example was former managing partner of my law firm. His brother lives around the corner from me and they're both retired. And my managing partner comes and visits with his brother. They get together every couple of weeks and they play music and they read from notes and they, they have like this classical penis. They just, oh, come over one day. I go over, I show up with my bass and they go, so what do you want to play? I'm like, punk rock. Like, they're like, well, can you read any of this music? Do you know any of this stuff? I'm like, no, I, I, I know nothing, man. Just tell me something and I'll, I'll just play it really, really well. And I haven't <laughs> been invited back. So they had this perception because I told them I played music for eight years and released some records. They had this perception that I knew what I was doing and I don't. That's what I loved about punk. You didn't really need to know it. You just had to have a passion for it. It's anti-theory, right? It's anti-theory. Yes. It just is. But I think that's the yes. same thing about mathematics. I think the same, because mathematics is not a theory. You don't need to have some theoretical approach. It just is. And I'll also add, one of the things I think you might like about punk rock, or at least one of the things I like about punk rock, is that it's motivating impetus is it doesn't give a shit about you. Yes. Like if you say to a punk rock musician, I really like their music, the proper response isn't thank you. It's I don't give a shit what you think. And there's something Absolutely. liberating in embracing the indifference of it. Why? Because we feel that the world is... Fucking in, can I, are we allowed to curse on this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right, good. We feel that the universe is fucking indifferent to us. And all the time we're told we're supposed to care. All the time we're supposed to act like we give a difference, right? That we show deference to one another, that we show deference to these rules. The universe doesn't care about us. The universe doesn't care about our rules. That's precisely what mathematics reveals. That's precisely what science reveals. It liberates us from the, the sort of pretense of the rules that otherwise govern our lives in the exact same way that punk rock does. It's the ultimate punk rock attitude, right? It, it's trying to become one with the indifference of the universe. I couldn't agree more. More like you know, the thing about punk rock is it is for the outsiders. It is it is for for those that feel on the outside that maybe they want to be on the inside of society, but they're like, well, you're going to push me out. F you, I'm out. I'm going to go do my own thing. So yeah, I could I could wax eloquently about punk rock forever, but I'll let you two speak about science and and other way more important things. That's what math and science do. <laughs> they embrace the outsiders. I mean, I assure you, if you go to a conference of mathematics and science, you're not finding uh, social insiders. <laughs> Drew, I have a question for you. You just made me think about something when you were talking about the universe as being indifferent. And you're doing work on good and evil. And I'm just wondering if that is one of the draws to the notion of God is as a rejection of this idea that the universe is indifferent and it feels quite lonely. And the idea that uh, religion might put forth is that there is this being that really cares about you and you're special. It, do you see any correlation there with like the need to draw in that? And then also when you talk about good and evil... How are you working with those concepts in terms of your understanding of science? Yeah, thanks. Well, so, okay, with regards to the first one, I, you're asking me to basically psychologically speculate. On, <laughs> and I'm reluctant to because I don't think okay. I've met a number of people of religious uh, persuasions, uh, various religious persuasions who are drawn to their faith for any number of profound reasons. And I don't think there's any one explanation. And to reduce it to some sort of like, you know, oh, well, they're just dialectically afraid of confronting the indifference of the universe not only seems to be paternalistic a little bit, it doesn't seem accurate. You know what I mean? I think people can be drawn to the beauty of these narratives for any number of reasons, some of which merely because they sort of express their understanding of reality. But I will say that at a scientific and mathematical level, it's very clear. I mean, we can prove demonstrably that the universe is indifferent to us, but we don't even need mathematics and science to prove that. Just go out and skin your knee and see if the 
ground apologizes. Mm-hmm. You see if it'll move out of the way when you're falling. It doesn't. And it doesn't care about the damage it does to you. Care is a fundamentally human thing. But here's the really interesting thing. The fundamental indifference of the universe has traditionally been read as testimony, at least by traditionally, we mean really since the so-called modern turn in human history. So we're say 16th century onwards as evidence for its moral neutrality. So Shakespeare says it best, right? Things are neither good nor bad, but our thinking makes it so. So there's a sense that, well, yeah, the universe is indifferent to us precisely because it has no persona, precisely because it has no basis of care. So why call it a a good universe as it was called by sort of medieval believers or a bad universe as it might've been called by Gnostics? It just is. That's just the facts of life. The really weird thing is if you define good and evil, if you look up the way that good and evil has traditionally been defined in the history of philosophy, evil is precisely defined as the lack of difference, the lack of deference when there should be difference, right? So we call somebody a sociopath precisely when we think that they should care, but they just don't. Precisely when they are like respond to the harm that they cause in you as if they didn't do it at all. They're entirely removed from that harm. So if we read this fundamental indifference of the universe through the lens of our definitions of good and evil, then we can say very easily and very definitively, the universe is not good. So the universe is neither good, nor is it morally neutral. It's precisely what we define as evil. It's a kind of sociopathic universe that creates conscious creatures and is fundamentally indifferent to how they do. It's like the ultimate deadbeat dad or abusive parent. (laughs) You sound like Hume. Really? That's actually how Hume described the notion of... You, you sound like Hume right there. And his breakdown of problems with arguments for the notion of a perfect God. And then he talks about uh, natural evil and that in anybody who would look around would see that this is not made by some sort of a perfect being. This is Hume's account for listening. I'm not advocating my own position. And he refers to God as like, if this were a God, then this would be like an abortive parent. Just there's no order. It's just pure chaos. But we're not talking about God here. We're just talking about the universe as such, right? Like, sure. So what? (sighs) But I think that's why for for Hume, that's evidence that that both there is no God and that therefore our conceptions of good and evil, which we attribute to God, are useless and should be reduced entirely to what he calls the passions, human experiences of the universe, right? And that that may be the case. But I think what I'd be saying is, no, I think actually to go back to Rudy's question about what the absolute is, if you define good and evil that way, then good and evil is still simply reducible to a human perspective, in which case there's no absolute definition of good and evil. There's at best a universal human definition of good and evil. So you might say, okay, universally from the perspective of the human, the the universe is a bad thing. But I want to say, actually, I want to go a little bit further. I want to say, no, it's absolutely evil to be. The universe itself is a moral horror. The sheer fact of being itself is absolutely indifferent to any human or particular perspective, evil by definition of what we call evil. In other words, if our word for evil is going to have any meaning whatsoever, then it's not something which is merely evil from the human perspective, but universally. Because bear in mind, the harm, the moral harm, the indifference the universe shows, and not only the indifference, the fact that it is actually structurally bent against the well-being of that which creates, is true not only at the level of things which can psychologically experience the universe, humans, maybe porpoises, you know, bonobos, but things which merely exist uh, with basic sensate devices, so plants, mollusks, they, they flee from the horror of the universe. But I would even say at the level of, of chemical life, of physical life, the entropic destruction of the universe, the fact that the universe creates things merely to not only destroy them, but to use them to destroy other things means that to be in a thermodynamic reality is to be fundamentally within an antagonistic system. The universe is antagonistic to itself and everything that exists within it is antagonistic to every other thing that exists. 
And if you're cursed by complexity of that universe to be able to sense it, well, then you're even worse off. And that is grounds for not only saying that we experience it as evil from a human perspective, but that it is evil itself. This episode of Goodies in the Details is brought to you by AdamMoreInc.com. If you love playing bridge or if somebody close to you loves playing bridge, you're going to want to check out avonmoreinc.com. They have everything that you need from coasters to cards, smart color cards, also great for kids, tallies, anything you need for your party. Go to avonmoreinc.com, let them know that Good is in the Details sent you, and I will link them in the show notes. Good is in the Details is partnered with Newsly.me. It's that all-in-one app for iOS and Android. Get your news read to you in a natural human voice. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can get articles and podcasts from all over the web. What are you interested in? Philosophy, transportation, music? Check out Newsly.me and use offer code THEDETAILS to get one month free premium subscription. And I will link that in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. So if we are taking this definition of evil and then we're applying it to the very structure of the universe, then we would have to accept that the universe actually falls into that definition of what constitutes evil. Yeah, that's right. This is a bit of a tangent, but Philip Zimbardo's experiment, the Stanford Prison Experiment, something that, which is not in and of itself a great conclusive experiment, but something that always fascinated me was that Philip Zimbardo said he wanted to see what would happen if he put good people in an evil place. He doesn't bother to define evil, but all we need to do is look at the experiment to see what constitutes evil. And it is all deprivation. It's all, you know, no eye contact, not referring to people as people, no sunlight, poor food, punishment without any kind of rhyme or reason. And so from there, we can kind of conclude what he thinks evil is. And I think that now that And I don't think that he's wrong in understanding evil in that way, but I've never thought about if we take that definition and apply it to the universe and it would fit in there. So I know you're interested in ethics. Where do we go from here if that's the foundation? Well, I mean, well, first of all, I'd say that it's an interesting question about the Stanford prison experiment. This idea that, uh, take first of all, I'm not sure that there are good people. Um, I'm not sure that anything <laughs> is ever good uh, from a fundamental standpoint, but this idea of putting, let's just say people or, or animals or anything within a horrible place. Well, that's literally the history of the universe itself. <laughs> it's a melancholy record of horrors. Existence itself is one big Stanford prison experiment. So what does this do for ethics at the level of practical lived mm-hmm. normativity? In other words, Rudy, lived normativity. <laughs> How can we, from this concept of good and evil, actually derive moral ought, prescriptive things? Can we say, hey, look, there, because of this, therefore that. Do this. Don't do that. That's super easy because here's the problem. The whole problem of ethics in the 20th century is that we haven't been able to find some absolute thing upon which we all agree. Since the so-called death of God as the last sort of agreed upon absolute, we don't have moral norms that we can kind of universally apply, right? We think of these moral norms as being grounded in uh, one person's culture or one person's uh, perspective or one person's experience. But all of a sudden we say, no, 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 moral values are, are not only universal amongst all humans, amongst all biological organisms, but even amongst all existent objects. Then all of a sudden we have a shared ground, a shared absolute moral ground, namely that it's evil to be. How do we extract sort of normative prescriptions out of that? Easily, negatively, dialectically. We simply say, don't be like the universe. (laughs) 
For example, don't procreate. Don't recreate yourself in pursuit of some vainglory attempt at either immortality through your children or because somehow you think that they can contribute to the world being a better place or simply because you're following the sort of bourgeois prescriptions of your community that says at a certain age, you're supposed to have a child. Why harness another being and saddle them with this sort of great moral evil? And if you have already had children, if that happens to be the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, right. And not just Rudy, you. you're guilty two times. No, I mean, I have a whole bunch of thoughts on this. <laughs> right Drew, finish yeah, well, up. So, Go ahead. Because I, I, I'm going to argue against you. I know an absolute. But go yeah, ahead. So, uh, so first and foremost, I think like I, it would lend itself towards what we call antinatalism, a philosophical position which negates the sort of moral goodness of, of giving birth children. But if you are going to reproduce, if it's going to happen or if it's already happened, then you have a very clear sort of moral norm in them, right? Which is sort of prepare them to resist the structures of the universe as much as possible. So if the universe is bent on doing harm towards one another, then prepare them and give them the tools necessary to do as little harm as necessary. So for example, a vegetarian or a vegan diet. So instead of living by preying off of the well-being of others, which is what the universe has constructed us to do, limit your consumption, limit your consumptions of other sentient creatures. So I think we can we can develop moral norms precisely against the absolute truth of the universe, against its indifference. So for example, we could say cultivate difference, cultivate cultivate care, precisely because the universe doesn't care. So for, you mean, listen, you hear people say this all the time. Uh, listen, in nature, lions just eat lamb. So don't hold me accountable if I'm just taking advantage of the system. If you can't keep up, that's your fault. That's not that's not a moral good. Imitating nature is precisely evidence of how evil you are, right? You should be fighting to do this at every turn. I'm going to take what you said and actually apply it to my own personal philosophy. Okay, really, really quickly. Number one, there is one absolute and I have found it. If you're red, if you're blue, if you're religious, if you're atheist, it doesn't matter. I have found the one thing that everybody hates and, 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 and is at least interested in trying to find some kind of solution for. And this is why I play in this particular space. And that's traffic. <laughs> and, and, and I'm being serious about this. I'm really, I, I, I as, a, as an attorney in a law firm, I can't be playing politics. I can't be playing, you know, I, I can't get, get into the morass of political discourse or, or fighting on Twitter. I had to find the one thing that everybody hates and try to dedicate my life to, well, how can you do some things in order to reduce traffic? So that's why I advocate for public transportation. That's why I advocate for trying to walk instead of a car. Even if that's an electric car, try to walk more because that's still more cars on the street. Even if it's an electric car versus a gas-powered car, you're still driving a car. And I try to advocate for other alternatives for transportation because no matter what you think of the universe, no matter what you think of religion, no matter what you think of procreation, at the end of the day, transportation is an absolute. We need to get from here to there for whatever reasons that we need to do. This is a really great example of precisely what an absolute is not. (laughs) Rudy, this is a really good example of what you might say, what we might call a situational ethical good, right? But not an absolute one. Because again, if absolute is something which exists precisely separated from human existence, independent from human existence, traffic doesn't exist absolute or absolved from, independent from human existence. It's precisely an expression of the complexities of modern life in the mechanized West, right? So it's not only it's not only not an absolute, it's not even a universal human problem. It's a human problem which only exists in certain hyper-mechanized urban areas, right? 
now I agree that in those areas, we can pretty much all agree that it, that it sucks unless somebody's like, oh no, I like uh, traffic because it gives me a chance to listen to good as in the details. But we can imagine <laughs> it, precisely for that reason, how not only is it not separated from human experience, right? It's, it's actually completely a product of human experience. So it's not an absolute, but we can even imagine somebody who would want to disagree with you on that. So when we say we're looking for absolutes on which we can ground things, we're looking for for a foundation precisely where there isn't room for disagreement, precisely where somebody couldn't go, well, I kind of like traffic. Those people would be maniacs. If, if somebody says, I like traffic, then I don't want to talk to them. They're obviously a crazy <laughs> I feel the same way about pineapple on pizza, but as we know, that's not an absolute, right? <laughs> there's, okay, there's Rudy absolute. Okay, you, <laughs> well, you don't understand. If you, if you listen to the show, you will know, I have my crazy absolute. So that's precisely again what we would say is well, that's if it's a Rudy absolute, then by definition, it's not an absolute, right? It's sort of a Rudy non-negotiable. It's it's a Rudy first principle, and that's useful to know because like we can figure out on our first date whether we're going to be successful at at coupling. But absolutes exist there regardless of whether they're not our first principles. Absolutes are are indifferent to our first principles, and absolutes remain absolutes even if every human being disappears, and along with them the problem of traffic and the podcast they may listen to while stuck therein. I got another good one for you, Drew. So if existence is inherently evil and the universe is inherently evil. And I'm okay with this. Just be honest. Am I evil? Because I'm not kidding when I say I'm going to try to live forever. Does that make me evil? It's cool. If I'm evil, it's cool. Just... I just need to know. I would say that we are all equally guilty of the moral crime of existence. And none of us get out of it alive. And to think that any of us can wash our hands of the culpability of existence is ridiculous. So yes, you're evil, but no more so than I. Yes. Nor more any less than I am. And in fact, one of the things I like about this ethical position is it precisely takes the air out of the moral superiority of those who think that somehow they're above it all because they, you know, they've accepted their fate. They are vegetarians. They drive electric and they vote for Green Party candidates. Okay, do you think that thermodynamically you're not still subsisting to kind of speed up the entropic destruction of your environment? If you do, I've got some bad mathematical news for you, followed by some generally worse scientific reality for you. So I love that. I love that, man. That's good. I like that. So nobody can be any better than anybody else, but there are things we can do that can actively strive to resist these things. Now, will they be successful? No, absolutely not. They will not be successful, but it doesn't make them any less valuable uh, for their futility. I remember when I was a boy hearing the thought that simply because a war was lost long before you were born doesn't mean it's not a cause worth dying for. And I think that's certainly the case, right? There are things that I will rail against in my life that I know are lost causes. You know this with your kids. You can rail against screen time all you want. It's it's a lost cause. It doesn't mean it's any any less valuable to say, look, we got to reduce your screen time. So goodness is not defined through the successful completion of our our goals. It's defined precisely in the attempts to negate the thwarting of other ones. In other words, I think goodness only exists negatively. Evil is the only thing that exists positively. Evil is what is. Goodness only occurs where we try to negate it. Wow. that's I'm blown away. I, know, I mean, my, I wish the video camera was... was, was we're all evil. Yeah, this is awesome. Do you, do you not hear <laughs> this? this is, I mean, I can finally go to sleep Rudy, tonight. Can, Drew, can I, thank can I, you so much. Can I give much. you an example, Rudy, a, a more concrete okay. example? 
Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Wait, I, listen. No, no, please keep going. We, I am feeling so much better about myself. <laughs> this is, I, I've, I've been looking for this for forever. Rudy, I don't know. Drew's going to have to talk about death. I don't know how you're going to feel. I teed him up. I said, I, I want to live forever. Well, I mean, I got bad news for you there. Uh, <laughs> even if science were to come along and, and uh, some technological invention were to come, such as you could, you're not going to outrun the sun's explosion in 2.5 billion years. And even if you did, even if somehow you were to escape our solar system, the universe is slowly winding down. It's a thermodynamic clock, which will eventually tick into absolute zero at the far ends of history, when there will be literally nothing, not even dead matter floating in an empty universe. There will simply be low-level uh, radiation. So you, Rudy, are doomed, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say. But I got 2.5 billion years, right? I mean, so there, so I can read all the books, I can watch all the sure. films, so I have time. Yeah, you got time. You got time. Okay. Here's the Thank thing. God. Feeling Everybody good. is going to die, but they needn't die today. So here's a, here's a good example. If you bring somebody into an emergency room and you say, doctor, doctor, this person's been shot. They're going to die. If the doctor goes, yeah, look, well, everybody is. It's the fucking facts of life. And thermodynamically, eventually the sun's going to explode. We would say that person is a bad doctor. Because the doctor, though they know this, is nevertheless meant to futilely try to keep this person alive. And they know that if they keep them alive today, they may die tomorrow or maybe not tomorrow, but maybe next week or in 30 years or in 40 years or at best 80 years. But eventually they will die. But the goodness of the doctor is measured precisely in their refusal to allow it to happen today, right now. In this moment, they are going to do everything they can to kick against the inevitability of fate, to kick against the inevitability of the universe that is indifferent to what this person can bring to the universe. That is what goodness is. So in a similar way, I know that this is the fate of the universe. I know the universe is evil. I know that to exist is to antagonize everything around me and to contribute to its thermodynamic collapse and to even speed it up. I'm a catalyst to the apocalypse, but I needn't be as much as I always am. And I needn't be immediately right now today. Right now, I can try. Right now, I can do this. I know inevitably I'll fail. Inevitably, I, I, I will contribute, but I don't have to actively contribute. I can try to kick against it as much as possible. Intuitively, we already see this in, in, at work in medicine, right? I'm assuming that you've spoken about some of this at conferences. I'm just wondering if there's been any pearl clutching at... <laughs> The way in which that you are talking about this, because this is making us, this is a new view, um, a reorientation of our concept of good and evil, of ethics. So what does the pushback look like to this yeah. from one, from your experience of when people are interacting with your work? I'm just curious. It's, uh, it's yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, here's the funny thing. I mean, like on the one hand, it's not so new. I, in fact, I used to joke when I was uh, writing the most recent book that it's really just Neo-Manichaeism. So the Manichaeans were these, a weird Gnostic sect around the second century CE that believed that matter itself was evil and that our job was to sort of strip ourselves of matter in pursuit of what they considered to be the good, which they thought was something spiritual. I'm a kind of atheist Manichaean, right? So I think, yeah, matter is evil. There's just no good outside beyond this in some spiritual realm. I mean, I do try to sort of take some of the sting away with it, with joking. And in fact, my next book is going to be on the aesthetic power of laughter and of escapist sort of literature to kind of help us deal with the, the facts, the pessimistic facts of reality. But yeah, people don't like it. <laughs> I mean, some people more than others. Has there, has there been somebody where, I'm just curious, like what is a response? And then how do you respond? I just got uh, the blurbs uh, for my book. And, and one of the blurbs was, this book will deeply unsettle readers. And I remember thinking, is that, is that a good blurb or a bad blurb? 
Um, <laughs> it is. It's true. It's deeply unsettling. It's deeply unsettled me. I don't. I don't like thinking about the universe in these terms. But here's the problem. This is what this data shows. If you want to understand the universe through the lens of mathematics and science, this is what it testifies to. Whether you like it or not, this is what it is. So when you go in eventually, Rudy, and you get that cancer diagnosis, it, it, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa! All my good feelings. Are going to hell now. That's not even. This is. This is. This is not good. You don't. Nobody wants that news. But it is the facts, and and facing up to the facts is the, the beginning of being able to do something about it. So whether or not you'll be successful is another thing entirely. So again, yeah, it's th these are the hard facts of reality, I think, that if you're going to really do a philosophy that's informed by an understanding of mathematics and science, you're going to have to confront. And I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but please don't shoot the messenger. This is just the message that the universe brings you. Okay, Drew, let's hypothetically say that you're um, selected your work, you're going to be debating any other philosopher in history, what would make the greatest debate for you? Who would be your greatest adversary in having this kind of a conversation? Any philosopher in history. You mean who would disagree with me most or who would I most enjoy yes. to have a conversation with? No, not a conversation, a debate. Who would be disagreeing with you the most and that it would probably be the most theatrical to have you debate said person regarding this notion of good and evil? My guess is, I mean, going back to this idea of it being a kind of neo-Manichaeism, that it would be one of the early medievals, probably like, you know, Augustine of, of Hippo, who like, I mean, wrote tracks about how evil the Manichaeans were precisely because he believed that not only was was the universe good because it was the expression of a good divine creator, but that yeah. therefore everything within it was fundamentally good. And that evil was, he said, he thought evil was what was privative. Evil didn't really exist for him. It was just what happens when we relate to the good in a bad way. So for example, wine, he says, is a fundamental goodness because wine is a, a product of grapes and grapes are a natural expression of the order of the divine. Wine only becomes bad if we drink so much of it that we forget the goodness of the grape and we forget the goodness of God in the grape. That just seems silly to me. You know, if wine is a good, it's a good precisely because I can drink it and forget how evil the universe is. And for a moment when I fall down and skin my knee, it makes me giggle rather than cry out. So I would say if there's any goodness in wine, it's precisely because it allows me to forget my sorrows at having to exist. So I think he's a goofball. Uh, but he's a lovely goofball. Yeah, I think Aquinas even yields to him when Aquinas is trying to address the problem of evil and just simply quotes him and saying, if there is any evil in the world, it's because it will come from God's infinite goodness to bring something out of that, that it's evil is just our perception. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So they think in the end, it'll all be redeemed. Anything that we experience as evil now will ultimately be proven as nothing more than an episode in the accomplishment of some final good. And I'd say almost the exact opposite. Any good you think you've accomplished right now is merely an episode in the accomplishment of some great evil, namely the annihilation of being itself. So I think he and I are dialectical opposites. But okay. I, you know what? Given that he's a medieval, he'd probably have me beheaded in, I don't know, like <laughs> You did mention you said you wanted to talk a little bit about pessimism. Yeah. So here's my here's my thinking. When I read, I, I want to talk about pessimism. I was like, okay, is he going to lambast the just think positive or the the positive thinking movement, or is he going to talk about the power of pessimism? Because if you're always worried and anxious about certain things, you'll fuel your fire in order for those things not to happen. I'm sorry if you haven't figured it out yet. I'm talking about my own messed up psychology. <laughs> if you haven't even figured out that this is turning into a psychoanalytical thing yet, but but I'm just curious. No, really, what what is it about? 
about pessimism. Yeah. Well, so I, so the, the name of the book is The Matter of Evil, right? Which is playing on this idea that matter itself might be a kind of moral evil. But the subtitle is From Speculative Metaphysics to Ethical Pessimism. So I think we have a misunderstanding of what pessimism is. And I think that there's a moral power to pessimism. And it's not like what you, you mentioned. It's not merely that, you know, pessimism can fuel us to be like a pessimistic understanding of the universe can fuel us to, to do more good or anything like that. I think pessimism, it kind of grows out of just a, it's a consequent of the recognition of the bad news the universe is sending you, as I put it to you earlier. Like it's just coming to terms with the bad news. So I, I make a joke on this idea of good news and bad news. You know, evangelism, the word evangel literally means good news, you know, the spread of the good news. So I have this chapter called The Evangel of Entropy, the good news of pessimism, the good news of, of the bad news. Gwen, I know, is an expert in existentialism. One of the things that existentialism says is, hey, there's good news. The universe has no meaning. Therefore, you can define yourself. And I say, no, 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 that's a complete lie. The universe has a meaning. It has a telos. Namely, it's created you precisely to do as much moral harm and destructive things as possible. But there's good news in recognizing that. Because now all of a sudden, I can recognize that contrary to what the nihilists say, that my life has no meaning, it has a meaning. It's just worse off than if you didn't have any meaning. So pessimism is the recognition that life is even worse off than if it had no meaning whatsoever. But I think that the good news of realizing that is now all of a sudden you have a strategic adversary to everything you do. If you now have a new absolute, namely it's terrible to be, you can organize your life in response to that absolute truth. Yeah. And again, futilely, you won't be successful, but nevertheless, you can organize it. It gives order, structure, meaning, and direction to your life that otherwise it would not have without an absolute. So you're rescued from the sort of depths of your despair at there being no meaning to life, but it's out of that frying pan into another fire. But that fire at least comes with some sort of productive power, if that makes any sense. But I do think, I do think pessimism is misunderstood. You know, a lot of people go, oh, the, the optimist sees the glass half full. The pessimist sees the glass half empty. That's, that's incorrect. The pessimist knows all too well that the glass is more than full. It's just more than full with a bitter poison that's going to kill you eventually, but not before torturing you entirely. Wow. I, uh, I can't take it. And that's, I'm done. I, I, uh, I am, uh, is it is it five o'clock somewhere? Yeah, I guess it's five o'clock somewhere. It's uh, thank you, Drew. I remember wine uh, is good. I, yeah. Well, I guess if, if if the universe is evil, and and if I'm just going to die anyway, and Drew already says I have cancer, f it, I'm going to go get drunk. That's that. <laughs> I think actually has some moral merit to it. I think I think things like this exist precisely to help us kill the thing that kills us, namely time. You got to kill some time with some wine, kill some time with some bad reality television shows. It's the only way you get through. But Rudy, this all means what Drew said is that this means you have the tools now to organize for goodness. You're resisting. I, listen, there's a lot to digest. <laughs> this, is good. I, this might get me back into organized therapy. <laughs> and, I, and I've been avoiding that. That for a long in and of itself time. would be proof of the good which can turn to. <laughs> From a recognition of the evil of the universe. When you are caring, Rudy, when you care about others, that is goodness. That's resistance. Goodness is resistance. Wait, is that fair, Drew? That's right. That's exactly right. Or goodness is at least okay. achieved or striven for through resistance. Okay, okay. That's 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 good. You guys are leaving me with something so I don't do bad things to myself. That, no. I, I, might, I, might be able, I might be able to noodle on that for a little bit. That's, <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. But this is a deep episode. I like deep, though, because they're making me think. I'm floored, really, with how upended my life has become in 45 minutes. <laughs> and but we got to talk about it. punk rock, right? I know, Drew. You and I need to sit down and have a couple of beers and wine and talk about punk rock. I would love it. I'd love that. Okay, Drew, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Finally got you on the pod. I'm so happy. It was great to be here. I appreciate you having me out. 
Food is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalsky and Rudy Sallow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or you can check us out on Instagram, Food is in the Details Pod. Take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode and tag us. You can also check us out on Facebook. Or if you have any questions or if you would like to partner up and sponsor an episode, you can get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. And you can join our Patreon for extra content and our book club. That is patreon.com slash good is in the details. And I will put that in the show notes. Remember to check out avonmoreinc.com and newsly.me for your one month free premium subscription. Okay, until next time. Bye.